During the month of October, Science Moab is producing a new show each week featuring scientists that have been recipients of the Canyonlands Natural History Association Discovery Pool Grants for 2023. Canyonlands Natural History Association is a nonprofit organization which exists solely to assist the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, and the Bureau of Land Management in their education and visitor efforts. The Discovery Pool Research Grant Program was established by CNHA to encourage and provide funding for research partnerships between qualified scientists and CNHA's federal agency partners in southeastern Utah. Since its inception in 2007, CNHA's Discovery Pool has awarded $800,000 in grants. The research for today's episode was partially funded by the Discovery Pool. This is Science Moab a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the American pika, mountain goats, and the science of their interaction. From camp in Gold Basin, I looked up at the ridge, and we were fascinated to see mountain goats up there. And I just noticed that they were kind of like, laying and eating and just kind of walking around the talus where I knew that pikas were. And I said out loud, I said, I wonder if there's anything going on there. And Dr. Varner said, well, you can study that. And that's kind of how it got started. She really has taken me and shown me that you can just ask questions for science and study science that way. So it's been fun. That's Mallory Sandoval-Lambert, a PhD candidate at Utah State University, studying ecological interactions between American pikas and mountain goats, right here in the LaSalle Mountains. We start off by talking about the logistics of studying these two mammals. Dr. Varner is the one trapping them. So for my project, I don't actually trap them, but for the mountain goats, there are some of them that have been outfitted with GPS collars. And so that allows us to look at their movements. Every two hours, there's a location that is collected. And so that's one way that I monitor the mountain goat movements. And then for the pikas, I'm going out and collecting behavioral data to kind of tie that into the mountain goat space use. I guess part of this behavioral data is kind of getting a a fine scale image of how the pikas use the Talus Edge habitat. And so what we do, we walk up there very early in the morning and we sit down, someone has binoculars and the other person has a tablet and you watch as these pikas run out from the Talus, which if people don't know, a Talus is just a rocky, a rocky slope. And they use the talus to escape predation and to escape extreme temperatures. And so they have to run out of that safety to go forage and collect hay for their winter hay piles. And so what we're collecting is the distance that they run from the talus edge out to a spot in the vegetated strip next to the talus and basically just getting those measurements which will then be incorporated into this mountain goat base use. Okay, so the pikas are just living in the rock talus and the mountain goats are hanging out there as well. But where do those guys live? 
They're kind of all over. They're both, <laughs> both of these species are typically found at these high elevations in alpine terrain. And as many people might know, mountain goats are very well suited to alpine environments and very cliffy habitats. So they tend to move around. The females kind of hang out in groups with their kids and they'll move together and find forage together. And then to escape predation, you can see them oftentimes in cliffy areas. So I've seen them hanging out quite a bit on, I think it's the east side of Mount Tomasaki in those cliffs. But yeah, they're kind of all over. Yeah, in the summer, they're at the mountain peaks, kind of high up. And then in the winter, some mountain goat populations migrate to lower elevations to escape the energetic demands of living with a lot of deep snow, which we saw this year. Yeah, sure. Mallory is still in the process of collecting data, and one of the first steps of Mallory's research is to digitize the tail slope so that it can be used in the analysis. One challenge of this chapter of my project is being able to sort of digitize these talus slopes so that they can be used in this analysis. So that's where I that's where I'm at right now. I don't have any definitive results, but what I can tell you is so I have 10 grazing exclosure sites set up across the north group and at each of the sites we have two camera traps deployed each summer to collect visitation to each of our plots by pikas and mountain goats, but we also get other animals like marmots, some or black bears that just like randomly trundled through. But I was really happy and surprised, not surprised, but just excited to see that we got quite a, quite a lot of data on these camera traps of mountain goats and pikas using these areas. So we know that they're using it. We still just don't know to what extent. The analysis that I'll do is called resource selection function. And it compares, for example, mountain goat used points that we know are used because they were collected from the GPS caller to randomly generated available points on the landscape. And in doing that, you're looking at different habitats and whether or not they're actually preferring one over the other by comparing these used and available points. And so one habitat that I need to digitize, so if people are familiar with the term raster, it's basically a GIS layer of the talus, which doesn't really exist, but I've gone pretty far and to a point where I feel really excited and confident that I'll be able to do it. And I'm hoping, hoping to have that done in the fall. And then I'd like to have the full analysis done at least sometime this coming spring. But yeah, it is a GIS layer of talus habitat. Okay, so you're trying to study the uh, overlapping land usage of these two animals. How do you know whether they are just cruising around or are they foraging? Or if they're cruising around, are they automatically foraging? I'm not sure. So what, what are you trying to study by the movements of these two animals? Yeah, with the resource selection function, that will just be, that really won't tell us like this animal is foraging 
because all we have is one like you know gps points you don't have like an image of what the animal is doing so what that analysis will show is just whether their movements are them themselves selecting an area whether that be for foraging or resting or whatever from what i've seen when goats move they often are eating <laughs> so yeah the resource selection function will just be able to show us where they prefer to be and to use these areas but as far as like how they're using it that analysis won't really give me that information what i am doing this year that is new that i'm really excited about and the canyonlands natural history association is helping fund is a dna metabarcoding what that is doing is we go out and we collect poop from mountain goats and pikas and we send it to our collaborators at Princeton University who will be running these poop samples through DNA metabarcoding to be able to identify DNA fragments of plants in the poop or scat of each of these species. And so we're hoping with that that we'll kind of get a species list in each of their diets and we'll start to hopefully be able to look at what type and what amount of overlap there is in foraging and that will kind of give us another line of evidence as to what type of interaction might be going on. Very cool. So, I mean, in studying the interactions of these two animals or mammals, what is the overall goal of your research? I have two explanations there. The first one is more broad. That's just, we don't, like, like these species do occur naturally in parts of their range. So in Alaska and parts of Canada and then parts of uh, the United States, they do overlap and no one has looked into how they interact or how they don't interact in those areas. And so I think it's just an interesting question because no one has looked at it. But I think the the second explanation of why it's important is that we do have these mountain goat transplants that are happening throughout the state of Utah. And I think seeing how they interact can kind of help us plan these transplants in the future. So if we know, for example, that, okay, it we're seeing evidence that there may be competition between mountain goats and American pikas. Maybe we should, if we're going to transplant them, we should transplant them in areas where pikas don't currently exist. Or the other possibility, which I think is interesting, is that mountain goats and pikas could facilitate the existence of one another. This is something that we see in Africa among large and small-bodied herbivores. And so that is one possibility. And if that were to happen, we could say, okay, we're seeing evidence of facilitation. Yeah. So if we are seeing evidence of facilitation, we can say, oh, okay, maybe we can transplant these mountain goats in areas where pika populations are declining, and maybe that would help. So I think regionally within Utah, that is the way that we can help conserve both of these species. Very cool. 
So you're like you said, you're in the kind of data gathering phase or you know of of this whole project. I mean, what are your what are your next steps as you're collecting data? What else is what else are you trying to figure out along the way? Yeah. So yeah, this is my third summer field season, and I'll have a final field season next summer, after which I think I'll have the bulk of the data and we'll start to kind of have some more interesting results. But until then, I mentioned I have grazing exclosures out on the north group of the LaSalle's. So I have 10 of those. And at each site, there are three grazing exclosure plots. One is a totally open plot, which allows both species to feed. The second is a partially closed plot, which only allows pikas to feed. And then the third one is a fully exclosed plot, which doesn't allow anybody in. And so what we do throughout the summer is we just monitor those. Like I said previously, we have camera traps that are monitoring visitation to the partial plot and to the open plot by these species. And so by doing that, we'll be able to look at the relative visitation rate to these plots by each species to kind of see how much time they really contribute in that area. And then pairing it, you can see the contribution to herbivory by each species in that location. So that is what we do in the field. And that's what we'll be doing this year and next year. And yeah, I'm excited. I'm heading out tomorrow. So be nice. Yeah, kind of getting everything ready. It's beautiful up there. I'm guessing, but I don't know for sure that you don't gather a whole lot of data in the winter. Correct. Um, do pikas hibernate? What is their deal in the winter? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a fun <laughs> one. So yeah, pikas are really interesting creatures. And I think they are also part of why this, this question is so interesting. So pikas in the summer, they're active. They actively eat. So they feed, but they also spend a lot of their time running out and collecting food for the winter, which they hide under rocks. And if you go hiking out there, you can find these rocks and there's a ton of, it's like, it's so amazing the amount of vegetation that a tiny animal like that um, (laughs) collects. And yeah, so they collect a lot throughout the summer. And then in the winter, we have the snow and pikas do not hibernate. They sit underneath the snow and they eat these plants and they actually select a variation of toxic plants and the toxins as they degrade throughout the winter, they preserve the plants and as the toxins degrade, the pikas can then eat them. So they're pretty smart. And so pika and their behavior, their hang behavior is interesting in this project and with this question of how they may or may not interact with mountain goats, because if animals compete, it's typically when resources are limited, which is the winter season in this case. Um, And so by the pika going out and collecting its winter food in the summer, it may actually kind of remove itself from competing in this resource limited season in the winter by hang. Um, so that's one possibility. And yeah, we will, we'll see how it pans out. 
Very cool. And the, the, the goats are active all winter, are, are they not? They're, yeah, they're out and about. Yeah. What do they forage on, or do they just go lower? They, yeah, if there's a lot of snow, then they typically move down in elevation, and they're categorized as, I think, grazers and intermediate browsers, I believe. And so in the summer, they often, they eat a lot of grasses and forbs. And then in the winter, when some of those become a little less available, they'll forage on like tree tree bits and browse and stuff like that. But yeah, they think they're out there trying to dig up whatever they can from underneath the snow. Yeah, no doubt. And I'm curious, you kind of mentioned this earlier, but other examples of, you said like, you know, a larger mammal or herbivore and a, a smaller herbivore kind of coexisting or cohabitating, you know, in your research, what other examples have you found of, of these large and small, or not even large and small, but a couple, you know, mammals, herbivores mm -hmm. kind of cohabitating? Yeah, like I mentioned, Africa is a prime example of this. So we have these super rainy seasons, which then generate a lot of vegetation on the landscape. And then we have these really big herbivores, some of them mega herbivores that are migrating through and eating down the, a lot of this vegetation. And so what, what they do is they create what we call these grazing lawns, which are just areas of short, young, and nutritious forage. So basically they, they eat the vegetation down to a point where it becomes really kind of nutritious and easier to digest by other animals. And then you'll see, or you have smaller herbivores that come in and take advantage of that really nutritious forage. And then both small and large herbivores then are urinating and defecating in these areas, which helps to regenerate the nutrients on the landscape. So yeah, that is one example of facilitation. And there's actually evidence of the plateau pica, which exists in the Tibetan plateau. They're seeing that cattle and, which is interesting, that cattle and the Tibetan plateau pica may be facilitating each other. And that's a, that's a, a contentious issue also because for a long, long time, the Tibetan plateau pica has been seen kind of as a nuisance, similar to how some people think of the prairie dog that we see in the U.S., a hopeful story for the Tibetan plateau pica. I mean, what's next is assimilating all the data and kind of writing it all up and all that. That's kind yeah, of next, so yeah. we'll Yeah, we'll collect more data this year, and then I will hopefully be ready to be done with the fecal DNA metabarcoding analysis sometime within the next year. And then, yeah, I'll do the spatial analysis. And then the final year will be the end of the grazing exclosures. And so sometime in the next two to three years, we'll have <laughs> results. But yeah, we're just getting out there collecting data this year and hoping that the monsoons don't drive us away for too long. Well, Mallory, I really appreciate you talking to us and I really wish you luck and uh 
quite curious to see what, what where your research goes. Yeah, thanks, Peggy. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.